Where the hell have you been, soldier? Training, sir! Training, sir! What kind of training, son? Pizza training, sir! Hey, welcome to another amazing episode of Drew and Sam Talk Training. Uh, we're going to be all over the board today as far as topics go. In fact, you might say we're going to be pinballing all over the place. Oh, you are a wizard, Sam. You are a wizard. A pinball wizard. Thank you, Tommy. I am Sam with Bowser Consulting. And I am Drew with Better Than Yesterday Consulting. On this episode, believe it or not, we're going to get to a book again sooner or later. Uh, but in the hours of show prep, hours, I let Drew know that I had stopped on my way back uh, from my new friends in Salem, Indiana. I stopped at Fort Wayne at a pinball museum. And I was telling Drew, if for, for good listeners of the show, you know that Drew is a big Rush fan. And they had a Rush pinball machine that you could actually change the songs with the flippers. And so you could listen to a, whatever song you wanted to. Well, of the ones that they had, they didn't have my favorite Rush song, but that's another story for another day. No, they didn't put Red Barchetta on there. And I don't know why. That's yeah, really weird. But yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that is my favorite Rush song. But, and you know what? I'm touched that you remember that. That's, that's amazing. So, and Drew started to tell me that he was thinking about putting money into his pinball machine. And I said, wait, just one darn minute. You've got a pinball machine. I'm going to let Drew take it from there because it's his story. And I mean, let's be honest, there's been far too much Sam on the podcast lately. I don't know if I would agree with far too much Sam, but you know, let's just go with it. So a couple of years ago for spring break, wow, 2011, because we had just come 2012 because we had just come back from Minnesota. So that's not a couple of years ago. That's a decade. No, it's not. It's way longer than it seems in my head. We went out to New York City and we took the kids out to Ellis Island, Statue of Liberty and Midtown Manhattan and actually walked from Wall Street up to Times Square. Like just an enormously long day. And uh, Jody's aunt and uncle who lived in uh the Northeast at the time met us for lunch at the stage deli. Rob at the time was a VP with a uh, gaming company and Jackson being all of nine years old in the middle of lunch, looks at Rob and goes, uncle Rob, how many birthday presents have you gotten me? Oh no. I like where this is going. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just totally where this is going. And Rob goes, well, you know, it's, you know, we're a little far away and, and I know it's right around Christmas and Jack's like, totally get it. How many Christmas presents have you gotten me? And at this point, Jody and I are like, please, please, dude, stop. Like, what are you doing? Right. And uh, Rob goes, I, I, I don't think we, we have. And Jackson's like, so how can you make this up to me? Wow. Jackson, if you're listening, <laughs> I love your moxie, brother. This is awesome. And, and by the way, he is still the exact same way. As we're about to go to his college to see him direct the show this weekend but nice um, heidelberg correct yeah. correct yeah oh look at you remembering that see uh -huh. we're sharing we're sharing that we almost pay attention to each other that's nice. <laughs> so rob's company at the time had the gaming rights to cedar point okay and so a week or so goes by we laugh about the interaction and and rob calls me out of the blue and goes here's what i need you to do now it's like may right and he goes um 
He goes, I want you to drive down to Cedar Point. You're going to pull up to the guard shack. You're going to tell them your name. They're going to tell you to drive into Cedar Point and you're going to get something. I like this story. And I'm like, okay. So I drive to Cedar Point for the listeners who have never been to Cedar Point. It is the what, like third largest amusement park in the country. It has the biggest, fastest rides in the country. So it's right on Lake Erie and they call it the roller coast. Oh yeah. And it's, it is it's amazing. Yeah. If you're a roller coaster person, it, it's a, it's a destination should stop and you know, completely about Cedar. Point. Absolutely. If you're a roller coaster person, this makes Disneyland, Disney World, Six Flags look like a joke. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I, I pull up to the guard shack and I'm like, uh, Drew Helmholtz here for a pickup. And they're like, yep, yep, we've got you on the list. Drive into the park. Okay, first of all, <laughs> even if you drive out of the park with nothing, <laughs> the fact that you got to drive into the park is pretty cool. So, so carry on. It's only me, dude. Hazard's on just driving through Cedar Point like I've... No idea. In the avalanche. Uh, this was the car before the avalanche. I hadn't gotten it yet. Oh, dang. So yeah, an explorer, I, I think. Weren't you an explorer yeah, I guy? I, I was at the time. So I, I roll up to the, to the game center. I have no idea what to do. I'm parked outside the game center on the sidewalk. And the game center at Cedar Point only has like, I don't know, like 1,200 pinball machines and video games at the time. Like it's enormous. It's like 8,000 square feet of video games, right? Gotcha. And so I roll up and I, I'm, I don't know what to do at this point. So I'm just looking for anybody who works at Cedar Point and I tell them what, I, and they're like, yep, yep, we know. Come to the back. And I go into the maintenance shed. They tell me to pull around. So I pull around to the maintenance shed and they're like, we've got this pinball machine for you. I'm like, no, no kidding, really. And the, the, it's a South Park pinball machine. And at the time I was, I was a pretty good South Park fan. So I'm like, sweet. Now, Sam, have you ever moved a pinball machine before? I haven't, but I have seen them disassembled. So the first thing I was thinking before I thought about them being disassembled is how the heck are you going to get it in the Explorer? But the base or the table, I think they call it the table. Yes. Is probably pretty heavy. Yeah. So the South Park one is a solid wood case. They're not wood anymore most of the time, but this one was a solid wood case. So it weighs like 400 pounds. Folds up, legs off, fit into the Explorer by like a half inch. Uh, to get it into the basement, I needed every, every neighbor I had to get it out of the truck and into the basement, which at the time wasn't finished yet. So it just sat in the basement by an outlet. And you've got a walkout basement too, right? No, no, no walkout. Oh, I thought you had a walkout by that big nasty smoker you got that, by the way, we need to finish those, those uh, bricks. Oh, yeah. So that'll happen as soon as it's not snowing or raining. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's not going to happen in my basement right now. Today is a now 25 year old South park pinball machine. It's got wear and tear on it because it was at Cedar point for like eight or nine years. It probably hasn't fully worked uh, in four or five years. Now it'll work for like 20 minutes or so. And then it glitches out. That's what I'm saying. Like I've got like, a buddy of mine's an electrical engineer, so we were talking about it over a beer about a month ago. We're going to go in together and, and repair it because I've got the whole parts list for it. I can go online and order most of the parts. Some of the specific parts, like Mr. Hankey, I can't order. That's right. If you hit the bumper, the one bump, set of bumpers three times, Mr. Hankey comes up out of the toilet. Like, like it is exactly what you would imagine out of a South Park pinball machine. 
And because you can't order that part, someone like a mechanical engineer designed a 3D printer. Correct. That's what 3D printers were designed for is for Mr. Hinky. I could tell that now, luckily he works. Some of the little bumpers don't, but those are, those are easy switch outs. There's a pinball place up in Brighton that has a South Park pinball machine. That's like a museum in Brighton, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But they let you play everything. It's like 10 bucks and play everything, which is a blast. Yeah. It's right on Grand River. I've been there. I love it. They took the old, what do you call it? The, the scoreboard and it, and the original, because it's 1998, the original is a black scoreboard, yellow lights, very eight bit. Okay. And they upgraded it to a full color led. Oh, gracious. So it's like a TV screen and it's full color South park then instead of like eight bit yellow characters moving around. By the way, because, um, not that you would ever mention it. I am a little bit older than you. When that 8-bit LED came out, that was a huge improvement over the scores that, you know, looked like a slot machine. Yeah, they they would roll through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some of our listeners right now are saying, what's a pinball machine? No, no. (laughs) They don't, are. Yeah, in my basement, I've got the South Park pinball machine. I've got the little... uh, little gaming arcade thing that Jody and I picked up from Sam's club a couple of years ago and electronic artwork. So nice. So, so here's my advice to you on the pinball machine, fix it. Don't ever sell it because that story is priceless. The story is amazing. And, um, if I could get uncle Rob's number, that'd be great. Cause I'm on the hunt for a fishtails machine. He's no longer, he's no longer over at that company, but we might be able to work. Something. Yeah. But he knows a guy. Well, I think that's an amazing story. And as we talked in show prep, should we just tell the story or should we record it? I'm, I'm glad we recorded it. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that story. If you ever make your way to Dexter, maybe Drew will invite you in for a game of South Park pinball once he gets that thing up and running. Taps of beer, electronic dartboard, pinball machine. It's a nice hopping basement. That's awesome. Hey, uh, Lucas, let's hear from our old, long-lost friend, Burgess Meredith. Books! Books! All the books I'll need, all the books, all the books I'll ever want. Sam, I don't think we've recorded a book review since 1947. Um, yeah, and that's back <laughs> when you were 10 and I was 20. So it's been a minute. And uh, and here we're going to go. And what, what book are we doing? We are doing The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership by Tim Elmore. Uh, the subtitle on it is Embracing the Conflicting Demands of Today's Workplace. And I believe I picked this one out. You did. I, I talk about conflicting demands all the time. And sometimes it's a leadership thing. Sometimes it's a buy-in thing. And so this book completely caught my eye because of that. Which one is more important? And you and I have had that recently as a discussion as well. So it, it was just one of those things that it just caught my eye and it seemed like it would be such a good idea to talk about it on the pod. Nicely done. I got into this one and I started reading it and then I started listening to it on audio and I had to fight my way through to get to the end of it because as it's been well documented on many of our episodes, you and I both enjoy a fable and this is far from that. It is that so each each chapter is broken up into the eight paradoxes and each chapter has an example from 
some well-known CEO, whether it's um, Truett Cathy over at Chick-fil-A or the Walmart family, there's examples throughout the book of well-known CEOs and how they have this paradox of leadership. And as an example of this paradox of leadership, it could be something like having a vision and, and blind spots, right? Um, that as a common leader, you would leverage the vision and that ability to look out and beyond the next hill, but you also leverage your blind spot that you know what you don't know, or at least acknowledge that there's stuff you don't know. So the whole book goes through the eight paradoxes like that. I'll hit the paradoxes. I may stop on one or two with an example. So paradox one, um, uncommon leaders are both confident and they have humility. And I think what's really important there is one of the things I say in my workshops all the time, I quote that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I think you should always be humble about the knowledge that you have. But I think you should also be confident about the knowledge you have. And to me, there's a huge difference between confidence and cockiness. And if any of our listeners or folks that worked with me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I think you'd understand that um, that was a very blurry line for me. And it's something that I had to grow into that confidence is okay, but cockiness can be somewhat obnoxious to, to put it quite bluntly. So I really liked that one. Paradox two, uncommon leaders leverage both their vision and their blind spots. And that's what you had just talked about. It's important to see where you want to get to. And then if we think back to the six working geniuses, the six working geniuses and the one genius where people have thoughtfulness, I'm, I'm forgetting the word exactly, but they can see things before they happen. It's discernment. Discernment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important that great leaders have someone around them that has great discernment so that they can find their blind spots in their opening. They're open to listening to that. Paradox three, uncommon leaders embrace both visibility and invisibility. I think this one at a top level is all about what I'm calling now the delegation matrix. And in the delegation matrix, at the beginning of learning a new skill, the leader has to be very visible. You, you trust your team member to do it, but you have to verify that they have the skills and knowledge to do it. And on the surface, that looks like micromanagement. But when you dig down deep into it, what I think it really is, is the ability for someone to help develop their team member into a place where the leader can become invisible. People want autonomy. People want to be able to take the idea, run with it, come back to you and say, hey, look at what I've done. But before they can run, you've got to make sure that they know how to tie their shoes. And that's what the trust but verify is to me. And I think that's why in this paradox, uncommon leaders have to be both visible and invisible. Paradox four, uncommon leaders are both stubborn and open-minded. I can't remember if it was in this book or not, Drew, but I recently read a quote and it said that if you're pretty sure of what you're talking about, you should talk like you know, but you should listen like you don't. And to me, that's what this, this paradox is all about. This one's one of the ones that I like from a leadership standpoint, because so at the end of each chapter, they do a summary piece and they explain how to practice. 
And this one has the two for the paradox that I like the most. Number one is that my team witnessed my tenacity. And that's the stubborn piece, right? We're going to do this. And then the open-minded is that my team will witness my teachability. To your point, it's that I'm, I'm open. I understand. I don't know something and I want to learn more. Yeah, I think, you know, if I've got any listeners right now that have been in a workshop in the last six months, heck, in the last six years, one of the things I do at the very beginning is I, I go around the room and I tell them what's in the room. And one thing that is always in the room is a parking lot. And the parking lot is a place to put questions that the participants have that I can't answer. And I think that's really important to show folks that you're trying to develop as leaders that not only is it okay to say, I don't know, as long as you immediately follow it up with, but I'll find out. I think it's necessary if you want to gain their trust and you want them to have any level of believability. I think that's a word in you. So I love that both deeply are uh, both stubborn and open-minded paradox five uncommon leaders are both deeply personal and inherently collective. In the example they gave or the quote they said in the book, I'm remembering it correctly because it didn't dog ear this one, but it, it hit me pretty solid was no person is bigger than the team yet. No, no task is larger than the person. So we've got to make sure that people understand that we care about them and also make sure that they understand that I absolutely do care about you and your personal things are more important than this individual task. At the same time, we've got to make sure that we understand that there's a job to do and it needs to get done. So I like that a lot. Paradox six, uncommon leaders are both teachers and learners. You know, if you and I have said it once, we've said it a million times. If you're not a lifelong learner, you are headed for disaster. Paradox seven, uncommon leaders model both high standards and gracious forgiveness. I love this one a lot. And in fact, I had a great example of it in a workshop. A manager told me that he had a team member that had taken a shift for someone else. And in this particular store, they have side work. They don't do out tasks. They do side work, which I'm a huge fan of. We have talked about the joy of side work on this podcast before. Indeed. And this particular team member decided that because he was covering for someone else, he wasn't really supposed to be at work anyway. So he didn't have any side work that he needed to do because they should just be happy that he was there. So the manager talked to him and said, no, you do have side work. And the conversation started to go south pretty quickly. But because of the manager's emotional intelligence, which is something they talk about in the book a lot, he, real, he realized quickly that if he maintained his high standards and didn't become gracious to the team member's needs, there was a chance that the team member was going to leave. Now, we've said it a ton. If you see something, you have to say something. But I think where we fall short on that particular little quote that we have is we don't tell them what you should say. You shouldn't say the same thing every time. It should be based on your emotional intelligence and how you read it. And this particular manager looked at the team member and said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take care of your side work today. And then when he checked him out, he sat him down and he set a full-fledged expectations of whether you're covering a shift or you're doing your own shift, side work is part of your shift. And moving forward, you need to know that. So I liked that he was very, very gracious at the moment of choice. And he was able to keep the team member. 
but he also maintained his high standards later on after the storm had passed and he set a full-fledged expectation moving forward. And I, you know, I, I mentioned this book when he, he mentioned that story because I think that was a great example of how leaders have got to manage these paradoxes. And then the final one, uncommon leaders are both timely and timeless. I had a couple of quotes highlighted in the book that I really, really like. And the first one is, he's talking about leaders and the need for social and emotional intelligence. And he said that today's people are drowning in information and yet starving for wisdom. That hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, we've got all of this information around us at our fingertips. And yet it seems like we don't have the wisdom to use that information in a way that's going to help us get to where we need to get to. For those of you who are thinking right now that wisdom is a weird word for that, let me, let me give you a, a different choice. What if we went to critical thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. I think that's, I think that's a great synonym. Right. We're in the same, we're in the same place, right? We've, we've got to be able to identify how to use the knowledge that we have at our fingertips. And if we can't do that, Sam, do you remember back? Gosh, it's probably two years ago now. There was a push on one of the Facebook groups to create a what if document. And somebody was like, oh, I've got one. And it's like 112 pages long. Yeah. Because to the point, it was intelligent, right? Yes. It was the what if for everything. Yes. However, Sam, you're an iPhone guy, correct? I am not Apple intolerant. That is correct. I, I am uh, Apple intolerant. I, I know nothing about Apple, but let's just, uh, let's just play along for a second. Knowing nothing about Apple, in the event that your phone behaves in a way that you don't like, is the first thing you do to restart it. Yes. Is the second thing you do to uninstall and reinstall the app. Yes. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter that process is going to fix 95% of the issues, not physical damage. That's correct. I could list out what to do if every one of these little things happen. Right. Or I could just say, try these things first. Yes. And I found more and more the what if documents for the stores. There's really like three what ifs, right? Something is broken. Someone is broken or someone wants to be broken. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, and we can kind of bucket everything else into a generic place. Correct. So how long does the what if document need to be? Um, it needs to be, I guess, three paragraphs. If you're going to put each one of those questions into a paragraph, because let me see if this is where you're heading. If you've got a what if document that has 130 items on it, the first time you go to reference that piece of knowledge, the one you're looking for isn't there because there's so many specific incidents. Correct. Yeah, I'm a big believer that when we talk about developing talent, number one thing we have to develop them on is this critical thinking piece and then being able to solve problems. And whatever problem is at hand today is simply the vehicle for teaching you how to think your way through. You know, along that, it, um, bless me sideways. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Helmholtz, professional teacher, professional public speaker, realizing that he says along these lines a lot of times, and now it's just driving him crazy. It is completely driving me nuts. It is 100% driving me nuts. 96% driving me nuts. 
in my class when I'm teaching supervisors and now managers how to do the snapshot and that manager walk, I try and teach them the difference between fixing something and solving something. And that often we fix something. And what happens is the next shift, the next day, we've got to fix it again and fix it again and fix it again. I usually use like the lobby as a good example. Like, oh, look, there's dirt in the corner of the lobby. Your choice is tell someone to clean that dirt or note it and see what happens later. Oh, look, there's dirt in the corner of the back room. Oh, look, there's dirt underneath this dunnage rack. Okay. Again, I could tell somebody to individually clean these three things, or I could say, we are clearly not cleaning under things and I need to make that a bigger deal. And if I solve the problem, I can solve it by making sure the team is actually sweeping under things and moving things to get into the corners. And, and it is such a leap. And I've had vice presidents suffer through that where they grab a rag and start cleaning an oven. And I'm like, why are you cleaning the oven? And what's the answer to that? Why are they cleaning it? And if they do it right now, they know it will get done. And it's so much easier to simply do it yourself than it is to develop someone to have the same vision that you have. And what's the downside to that? Oh, you're just on the, the hamster wheel. You're going to do this thing over and over again. As I tell the supervisors, if you're the only person that's checking for expired product, then you're the only person checking for expired product, which means you're the bearer of all expired product. The only person that notices it, the only person that knows it, the only person that could do anything about it is you. And that's a ridiculous burden for anything in the store for one individual person. I mean, this is what's going through my head right now. And I think it fits. Tell me if you think it does as well. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And if our role as leaders And let's not get lost in the fact that you and I both know that our role as leaders is to deliver the metrics that are going to drive the business. We understand that that's one of the roles. But the easiest way to deliver the metrics that are going to drive the business is to develop leaders. And if we stop developing leaders because fixing the problem at hand is faster than developing leaders, then, oh my goodness, that hamster wheel is going to start going about 3.789 billion miles per hour. To take it one step further, if you're a six-door supervisor and you're like, yeah, I've only got four super four leaders in my you're you're lost. You should have four leaders in a store. You should have eight leaders in a store. You should be able to look into a store and know that not only is your manager and the management team leaders, but you've got a driver or two or three that are leaders. You've got a CSR that could be a leader. Like there's got to be more people than one liter in your store. It has to be. As I hear you saying that, I mean, can't you almost hear some of your some of your clients saying, yeah, but Drew, I don't have those people. Oh yeah, 100 yeah. I think what we're what we're trying to say is you've got to look for people that have any level of leadership at all. And if they're showing any level of leadership at all, I mean, let's say it's a driver that is simply Telling another driver, hey, make sure you clean off that car top sign before you put it away for the night. That's leadership. Is it the leadership you need to run a store? Maybe not today, but if they've got that inherent leadership in them and you develop it, then maybe that driver becomes Don May 20 years later. Or maybe that driver just becomes a really good driver trainer for you. Exactly. It doesn't need to be more than that. It could, but. 
surrounding the store and leaders. Back to the book real quick. The book can come across one of two ways, and we want to make sure that you're getting it as the second way. That the book can come across as you need to be everything to everyone, and that that's impossible. That's how you get into this weird place of of being a chameleon and and not being honest with yourself. Because that's that's the paradox piece of it, right? How can you be humble and confident at the same time? I look at it the other way, and this is what we want you to get out of this, is that this is about situational leadership. And that's the examples we're trying to give you as well. That that in this moment, you need to be this way. Hey, it's not it's not me that did this. It's my team. My team's the reason that we got that record week. And in the next moment, you need to be whatever you need to be at that moment. Hey, here's the clear set expectation. Everybody does side work, right? It's it's that situational leadership. Yes. Is such a better way to put it that that it's not that you're expected to have what are technically 16 different personality traits at the same time. Because if you do, that's that's a different issue and a bigger problem for you. <laughs> this, the idea is that, that at this moment, you can do any one of those 16 things. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I want to hit one more thing in the book and then let's uh, figure out where the heck this book is going for us. And, and this one is huge to me. So a couple of things in current events. So for those of you that are sports ball fans, and, and maybe if you're a New York Jets fan, it, it appears that you may have a new quarterback on the horizon. Jets going to jet. So much pain. So much pain. But continue. One of the stories in the news in the last four or five weeks about this particular gentleman who is seems to be, he's very polarizing. You either love him or you hate him. And there doesn't seem to be a lot in between. So I'm talking about Aaron Rodgers, current quarterback of the Packers. He went into seclusion for three days. A darkness retreat. He went into a darkness retreat where there was no light. There was no sound. There was, I think, a bed and a restroom. And that was it. And he said he went in there to find himself and find out what he really wants. I'm going to read you a passage out of this book that I think is really important. Because in today's society, rarely do you see people walking around without earbuds in their ears or some sort of music playing. And it says, neuroscientists tell us that it's during times of boredom that our brains develop empathy and creativity. And I found that to be the case as well. There'll be times, you know, I spend a lot of windshield time. We talked about that in our hours of show prep. And sometimes I'll just turn everything off and let my mind wander. And I find that's where a lot of creative creativity comes in. And there's times where I'll be working and I'll specifically not turn any music on and I just want to be alone with my thoughts. And as nutty as it sounds to go into a dark room for three days, my guess is that Aaron came out of that room with a lot of clarity about what he wanted because there was no other choices to think about anything else. So here's a long-winded way to get to what I want to get to. You don't need an earbud in your ear while you're running the shift. You don't need to always be listening to music while you're doing things. Maybe sometimes you should be paying attention to what you're doing. And maybe sometimes you should be thinking about what's best for the customer and what's best for the team. And how could I be a better team member while I'm here instead of making sure that I stay up on Casey Kasem's American Top 40? Yeah, there is a reference that nobody is going to get. I'm building uh, assistant manager classes for uh, John Richards down in central Mississippi. And while I'm building the classes and I'm creating the content, there's no music playing. 
when I'm taking the draft content and pushing it into my template and cleaning it up, there's music playing. Because that's a different process. There's no, I'm not trying to be creative. I don't want to change anything. I can't change anything. We've already agreed to it. Like, like it is just taking it from a straight word doc to something pretty and something use, useful. I didn't realize till you said it, that that's exactly what I've been doing the last two weeks as I've been building content. When I'm building content, there's no music and it's me wandering around in silence in, in my office area. Um, and when I'm pushing stuff and cleaning it up, it's music playing. It's, we don't have to constantly be stimulating our brain with outside influences because folks out there in podcast land, you've got some great stuff inside your brain. And if you turned off the outside influences every now and then every now and again, you'd be alone with your own thoughts and you would start to, you would start to hear the great things that you already know and you could do. And I think you might, I think you might find a path to what it is you want to be successful at a little bit easier along those lines, Sam. <laughs> hey, um, hey, listen, Stephanie, if you're listening, uh, we got a new drinking game. It's called Along Those Lines. I'm dying here. Just dying. Just completely miserable. It's like a verbal tick. I might as well be going, uh, instead. But here's the good thing. And, you know, I teach this in, in our train the trainer class is once you realize it and you start to hear it, you are well down the road to changing the behavior. So good for you. Yeah, I don't know where I picked it up. I don't think it was this bad a couple months ago, but the last like three months, was it this bad? Wow. Well, first of all, it's not bad. So sorry. It's not bad. It, it's just kind of your phrase. And um, it comes up. It has always come up. I, I don't think it's I bad so at all. I'm so sorry. Don't, you shouldn't be. So sorry. You shouldn't be. Oh, no. No, there's no, nothing it wrong just, with it. It just irks me. Where's this book going, Sam? Okay, so for me, uh, I think there's a lot of fantastic information in the book. I think that doing the Helmholtz on this book is a wise thing. And for those of you that don't know what doing the Helmholtz is when you're reading a book, Drew will read through the first paragraph or so and decide if he is engaged or not, and then jump to the end, especially in a book like this, that does a really good job of summarizing the main points. For myself, that doesn't work. I need to read all the little stories to help me wrap my mind around it more. But this particular book was very difficult because, as we said in the opening, this one is not is not a story. It's not something that was a page turner for me. I had to fight my way to get through this. And if I'm being totally honest, I still have a chapter or two to go. For me, this one is on the shelf. Uh, it's not going to be something that I'm going to recommend to people that are like minded to read. Uh, but I have noticed you know, when, you know, I mentioned the, the train, the trainer class, there's a piece in there about art and another piece on science. And usually whoever is co-facilitating with me does the piece on science. Cause that's, that's not my jam. The people that are really engaged into that science piece, I would tell them to read this book because I think they would truly enjoy it. How about you, Drew? What's, uh, what's your final take on this, on this book? On the shelf all the way. That's, that's the only way this was going. As you said, I, I am, I like the fables more. They connect with me better that I can take something. And I, and again, this is as close to a fable as you're going to get, because each chapter is a story about these two conflicting things and how this person uses it. It just works for me better when it's all encompassed 
as a fable. So yeah, it's going on the shelf. Sam, since I have built on my webpage a um, a list of all the books that we have read. Yes, as have I. Why don't we go and pick a book for the next review so that anybody listening can go and grab it and read along with us? Oh, okay. I have an idea. Um, you oh, know, you I, can't see it on I the am, camera. <laughs> I, uh, Just grayed out. I'm going to, you know, there's something, it's kind of foggy in my mind. It's like an I Dream a Genie moment. There's another reference that's way too old, but it's something about be the beast or be the best. Help me out if you know where I'm going with this. What, what? It is, the, the book is Be the Best at What Matters Most by Joe Calloway. Nice. Be the best at what matters most. Grab that book. And by the time you have read it, hopefully Drew and I will have been it. And we will do, uh, again, our semi-annual book book podcast. And I just want to shout out to uh, my friend Dale Roberts, who turned me on to this book. So we'll uh, talk about this book on the next pod or seven later. Yeah, there you go. Hey, gang, thank you so much for listening to another riveting, amazing episode of Drew and Sam Talk Training. If nothing else, go out and find yourself a pinball machine and have some fun with that. Make sure you like us. Make sure that you subscribe. Uh, The offer still stands. If you have not gotten a hat pin yet, send us a picture that shows us you have subscribed. Our subscriber numbers are getting um, silly high way higher than I ever thought they would. And uh, just keep on amazing us. That's great. And our download numbers are, geez, oh, Pete's, you must be sharing them. That is fantastic. Uh, I am Sam with Fowler Consulting. I am Drew with Better Than Yesterday Consulting. And before Sam says the end phrase catch line, if you're tired of listening to us and you want to see us in person, visit trainwithbty.com and register for any of the three in-person classes we've got later this year. New Hampshire, Ann Arbor, and Tampa. Now, Sam. Hey, gang, go out, sell more pizza. And have more fun. Bye-bye. Woo, Sam.